1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than
0: 340 housing associations across the UK.
2: The podcast will begin after this message.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Bayer. We address some of the world's most pressing global challenges and continue to develop new solutions. As the population continues to grow and its age increases, we will need better medicines and high-quality food in sufficient quantities. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Between March and September, EU Confidential will, for one episode each month, zoom in on the important topics of climate and sustainability. Inspired by the alarming UN reports on the accelerating pace of climate change and with the backdrop of young climate protesters taking to the streets around the world, this series promises our signature EU Confidential insights and interviews through a green lens. Today's episode is all about cities. Is the efficiency and density of cities the solution to getting our emissions down? Or are the richer on-demand lifestyles of city dwellers also the problem? We'll hear from Amanda Eichel, Executive Director of the Global Covenant of Mayors for Energy and Climate Action. She talked to us about how cities are taking the lead, innovating and collaborating in order to tackle pressing climate challenges. Then we'll hear from the Mayor of a city, Anna koenig the Mayor of Stockholm and President of EuroCities. She spoke with Politico's Kalina Aroshikov, Stockholm is growing fast, but at the same time shrinking its emissions by 58% since 1990. The podcast panel dives into the Yellow Jackets movement, the alleged green wave in European politics, and we ask why Manfred Weber, the likely next European Commission president, is missing from the climate debate. But first up, that interview with Amanda Eichel. Amanda is the Executive Director of the Global Secretariat of the Global Covenant of Mayors on Climate and Energy, or GCOM for short. Welcome, Amanda.
3: Glad to be here. Thanks.
2: Maybe let's talk about why the covenant revolves around city-level action. And just in my head, cities are kind of the perfect demographic unit in a way, because they're big enough where you could achieve some meaningful change via a city administration, but they're small enough that you can really make it happen instead of just talking mm-hmm. the
3: talk. That's well, certainly how we see it and how the co-chairs of this initiative, the Global Covenant, see this. And my former boss prior to coming here to Brussels is Mike Bloomberg, a former mm-hmm. big city mayor, also global leader on the climate. He very much comes at this from the perspective of cities are where the action's happening. Mayors don't have any choice but to take care of their constituents. They're much closer to the, the work on the ground. And fundamentally, they are innovation hubs. So mm-hmm. they have the opportunity to test and try out new things that might be... Harder to do at even a state or national level. And that can offer the evidence that national governments or supernational governments need to actually take that regulatory change.
2: Yeah, and you even have a program called Innovation for Cities. We Tell do. me a bit about that.
3: That's our newest program. We're really excited about it. Innovate for Cities is essentially a research and technology innovation set of priorities that have been co generated by cities, the business community, the academic community, and government over the last year. Which sort of set out the types of data, science, information, and technology that cities need to do more um, than mm-hmm. they're currently doing. Mm-hmm. So many of them have very ambitious goals and targets, but they don't have everything that they need to fully achieve them. This agenda and this set of priorities identifies those things that they need and now is working with governments and super governments mm-hmm. like the European Commission, businesses, we have a new partnership with Google, the academic community, and um, the city networks themselves to actually respond to the priorities. So it could mean anything from you know, turning an existing R&D budget towards these priorities mm-hmm. and that's what we're working with the European Commission on. Uh, it could mean making proprietary data, like with Google, available mm-hmm. to cities to actually take decisions. Or it could be creating new academic programs to train the future leaders of in climate for tomorrow. Mm-hmm.
2: And thinking about the governance aspect, do you find that most cities have what they need in terms of for example, tax-raising powers or their ability to convene various forces? Or are some of them sort of stuck in the mode where they have the right intentions and the right ideas, but they're stuck cutting ribbons and they can't really bring it all together?
3: Really depends. And even in the same country context, it can depend on whether you have a strong mayor type of government, Mm. whether you have a city council-led, and whether that city actually has the power. So What we found is it really varies anywhere from about five to 50% of what cities want to do, they can do unilaterally on their own. Mm -hmm. And the rest really requires partnership with either private sector or other levels of government. Most of them cannot fully achieve their ambition on their own.
2: And then I noticed looking through your website, one of the things that really stood out was this idea of more jobs and better living, living and healthier cities. And... It struck me that when you look at things like what Emmanuel Macron has just gone through recently, where he had a good idea to do something Mm -hmm. for the climate, and then obviously there was backlash because a lot of people felt like it wasn't done in a just way. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, how important is it that you kind of can bring along all these different communities and make it feel like there are real benefits in people's lives to make a green change rather than just you do it for a moral reason or for some really long-term objective? It's
3: fundamental. I mean, and I think the, the really good news is that almost anything that you're doing from a climate perspective actually has very positive implications from a job creation. Definitely air quality and health, quality of life, all of those things, if you do it thoughtfully and in a way that involves the community. And so I think raising revenue for climate action is great but there needs to be some sort of plan for how that actually benefits the people in your community yeah. and many of the mayors that we're working with know that simply because they're directly there they have to answer to constituents and so they are in- engaging in these very broad public uh, engagement processes yeah.
2: i'm so glad you mentioned air quality it is the thing that frustrates me the most at the moment i have started riding my bike to work and I guess I knew that air quality was an issue in Brussels or something like Dieselgate made me realise even if I can't see it, there are problems Mm. in my air. And now, even just riding up the hill today to the office and this van was chugging out, like, really (laughs) obvious emissions. There was something wrong with that car. It was directly going in my face coming here. And I know that's, like, that annoying personal whinging story. But I was just like, we have got to do something. About this, and I, and I feel like it's one of those sleeper issues where it's not party political at all. Whether a car is choking you mm-hmm. isn't a left or a right <laughs> issue. It's just no one wants that to happen to their baby or to themselves when they're going to the shops. Is that something that you're picking up, that more and more people are annoyed about it or that there's more yeah. action that needs to be taken?
3: Absolutely. And again, going back to the sort of benefits of taking action, most mayors are going to take action from the perspective of health. Or job creation, or quality of life, rather than from an environment or climate perspective. Mm-hmm. It's only very recently that climate protection has actually resonated in the general, yeah. you know, space. And yeah. but the whole issue of electrification of the vehicle fleet has, is huge, and there's a huge opportunity for that. Mm-hmm. So long as we're actually generating our electricity from also a carbon, a low carbon source.
2: And you've been in Brussels for a couple of years now, so I like to get a bit local sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the things that you think Brussels? Does well now when it comes to these sort of issues. Like I know that they've got a big pedestrianized area in the center, mm. and they're starting to work on a low emission zone on different trucks and so on. But also they're split into nineteen communes. It's a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare to do anything in this city.
3: I think, like many cities in Europe, the transit system is is pretty great in comparison. I love it compared to yeah.
2: Australia where I grew up. Okay, I mean this is miles ahead
3: and honestly the bike the separated bike paths it's something that you don't see in many cities outside of Europe it's happening more and more Um, but it really is leading in in that perspective
2: and what are some examples like in all your travels around the I think it's more than 8,000 cities now have signed up yep Uh, 9,200 yeah yeah yeah. so 9,200 is there something where you think like oh this is the thing everyone has to do Or is it always a case that people have to tailor a solution to their own specific needs?
3: Uh, You know, I'd say it's a little bit of both. You know, unfortunately, we know from the latest science that we don't have a lot of time. And so that means that, honestly, everything needs to happen in every city. That said, the approach that a particular city will take may be very different depending on the context of, are they growing? Mm -hmm. What's the sort of density that they're working with that, you know, a small town doesn't have the same ability to create a mass transit system that a large city like Brussels would. But it is really everything within the transportation building and waste sector that will have to be changed.
2: And maybe one last question that's a bit more political. And and not to say, I don't want you to endorse somebody or or, or something, but I've looked this year at sort of the way these discussions are changing. And you see the way something like the Green New Deal idea Mm -hmm. in the US catches fire, or the way the climate strikes amongst the school students have just massively taken Mm -hmm. off here in Europe, and now they spread elsewhere as well. And I kind of, in a way, feel very inspired by it, where I know some people find that it's unrealistic or uncosted, some of these ideas, but it's very interesting the way that the conversation has caught mm-hmm. fire and I was wondering is there any particular way where you think like oh we can harness that energy in a particular way or where you are hoping one more step is taken and then we're at a tipping point in your own work or something like that
3: well you know I guess two two responses to that one I think fundamentally the conversation has changed and climate change is actually a political issue and it will be an issue I'm seeing it here in Europe we're seeing it definitely in the U.S. presidential candidates you know, that are that are coming forward, and even the new elected House in the, in the U.S. And that's the same, not just in Europe and the U.S., where you, you might expect that, but the number of cities that have made commitments in Africa has roughly doubled since we started mm. this program, and it's the same in many other developing regions. Now, that's
2: super interesting, mm-hmm. because for a long time, the argument at all of those global conferences and conventions mm-hmm. was, we... The developing countries should not be made to pay the price for the developed countries mm-hmm. industrializing first that one they should be given opportunities mm-hmm. to develop and two the developed countries should basically pay the compensation for what we're going through but i'm hearing or i think i'm hearing that everyone is saying we all need to do something. It doesn't mean there aren't different responsibilities, but yep. everyone thinks yep. they need to be on board so now. So taking
3: the who pays off the table, you know, and I think there's many different perspectives on that, but cities and governments in Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia, where we're working very hard this year in particular, are stepping up saying, we want to take action. We are ambitious. We want to do more. And frankly, we have no choice because we're already feeling the consequences of uh, increasing heat waves and flooding and extreme storms. Uh, And so the the perspective of many of those developing regions is from the, the need to adapt to existing climate change. But that said, they also recognize that they have an opportunity to develop SMART and to do it in a way based on the lessons that have been learned the hard way in places like Europe and the US.
2: Well, SMART is a word you can't argue with. So thank you very much for this SMART conversation, Amanda. Thank you. That was Amanda Eichel, Executive Director of the Global Covenant of Mayors for Energy and Climate Action. Next up... Anna Koning-Jomi, the mayor of Stockholm and president of Eurocities. She spoke with Politico's Kolina Aroshikov.
4: I've been a uh, mayor since October. I'm elected and also since uh, this autumn I was the president of the Eurocities. So I could actually now use the arena of Europe and the EU to widen the discussion how important cities are for combat climate issues and challenges. And that's also very important to me because on a personal level, I'm a mother of three. I really you know, are very engaged in the issues of the future, of how will the city and the world look like when they grow up. It's all about how we consume and how we live our daily life. And also as a politician, we have huge responsibilities because I think that a lot of the problems you see in the cities, it's flooding, it's air pollution, but you can also
5: find the solutions in the cities. And since you've already been a deputy mayor before and then Mm. in the opposition, have the issues of climate change and environmental degradation and protection become more relevant to your voters? Do you have the feeling there's been a change over the last years?
4: Definitely. I could see that in the last election campaign, that the young people really asked questions about climate, global heating air quality and water quality and that was issues that were not so common a couple of years ago but now everyone just expect the politicians to have really good reforms efficient reforms they read the newspapers so they have high demands on their politicians and then you really have to know what you talk about and show that you are for real and not only like you come with a political reform agenda that you
5: will not carry through what you promised. So what is your reform agenda on that front? And what are the challenges you think you will encounter over your term in implementing them?
4: We have an ambitious agenda in in Stockholm. We're trying also to implement it through the Eurocity, of course. Mm -hmm. But one such example is that we want to be fossil fuel free 2040. Mm -hmm. But in our own organization, we want to be role models. So we're talking about 2030. We also want to reduce the plastic within our organizations. We want to work with how you sort waste so it's much more efficient and you know look at everything from trying to increase the traffic when it comes to buses and collective traffic infrastructure and not only, you know, more cars on the streets and work with air quality, congestion charges and so on. to really
5: improve the quality of life for our citizens. Are there congestion charges already in place in Stockholm or yes. do you also plan to make them even higher? Yeah, we're looking at that,
4: trying to s- find incentives for people to do the right choices when it's come to choosing how you transport and when it comes to choosing should I take the car or the bus, or you know, what kind of car, what kind of fuel is it in the car. And we want to work on a national level as well, and with researchers, just to find the right price mechanism that really will support incentives for making the ecological
5: best choices. Because are you afraid, also based, for example, on the yellow jackets in Paris, that if you push too fast, too hard, that there's going to be social backlash? Is that part of your consultations and deliberations before you set a policy? You have to have natural policies that the whole country could live
4: with. So I think in the cities we can step up a little bit and make progress before the rest of the country, if you say. So that's why I think cities are so important. Why is that? We have more density in the cities. We live closer by, so it's a better place for taking the bike. And we can also see that in a city as Stockholm, I think it's increased with 70%
5: in the last years. And people in the countryside are slightly different or also because they do need cars. They do need
4: cars in another way because we have very long distances. If you want to go to the hospital, perhaps it's impossible to take the bus. But then we can work with more incentives on a national level when it comes to fuel and so on. So what would
5: you say are the three top challenges that you as the mayor of Stockholm grapple with and that also mayors across Europe grapple with? I think we use digitalization and 5G
4: and artificial intelligence more to find out how people move and, you know, make them to be aware of how they can change their daily habits. But I think also, of course, air pollution, we have a very good air quality in Stockholm, but we could be even better if we plant trees and so on and really work with biofuel in the buses and electric cars and so on. So it could be a very good environment also in the city.
5: I think Brussels is an interesting city for you. I don't know if you've noticed the air is much worse than Mm -hmm. Stockholm. Mm. If you walk around the streets here, is there something that you notice that you do better in Stockholm and that Brussels should maybe take on board?
4: Well, I, I hope we can learn from each other. I've just been here a couple of, not even a couple of days, a couple of hours today walking around. But of course, I mean, I want to show the fantastic innovation that we do in Stockholm when it comes to biochar and, and that kind of innovation where we really reduce CO2 emissions and we actually say, dig it into the ground. So it's CO two positive, if you, mm. see, you uh, uh, so that you absorb it exactly from the absorb it in a yeah. totally different way, and and actually if you see to the CO two emissions per capita, we reduce it by fifty eight percent in nineteen ninety, and I think that you can show that the city can still grow, but also really you know reduce the CO two emissions, and it's not a
5: contradiction. There's only so much you can do as a mayor.
4: Yeah,
5: I mean, how is that relationship between the mayor and, for example, a national government. Is it a supporting government force or do you sometimes see that, as you said before, cities are more ambitious than the national level Mm. at times? And does that cause friction, in your opinion or in your experience?
4: Sometimes, you know, if we have high standard or high ambition when it comes to building houses and how much energy that should be used, and then perhaps on a national level, sometimes you see it as an obstacle for building more (laughs) affordable housing because it's more perhaps expensive so that's one kind of example when it's a conflict but we are aware of that we need the national level and we need the EU also I mean as a city we can do quite a lot but we also need to see this ambitious on a national and on a EU level and that's where we think we can do even more I mean it's it's, some cities are very engaged But we really want to see more signing in that we should have a fossil fuel free country or city at 2050. I mean, now we have all this report on this alarming situation when it comes to climate. And then I think 2050, that's the latest, we should be fossil fuel free. Uh, I would like to see much more cities even 2040 if I had my personal view, but 2050 we can agree on that and really have ambitious plan and efficient measures that fulfill the goals. Then I would be really thrilled. <laughs> but we don't see that yet today, and I think that is very important now when you have all this European election coming up with the new commission and that you have to have the climate issues on top and you have to really. Pressure the Commission and other countries to really commit to indicators
5: and to goals and Mm. to measures that will truly lower the global warming. And you plan to lobby your peers that are so far resisting. Is there like a regional distribution? I assume that, for example, you as a Scandinavian or affluent cities in Western Europe are more likely to support an ambitious agenda, while perhaps cities in Bulgaria or mayors in Poland a little bit more constrained also because of their dependency on coal and heating issues. Do you see that here in the European context or do you have the feeling, even in Central and Eastern Europe, that they're becoming more activist on those issues? Yeah,
4: I think so, that the cities. I'm very impressed by cities in Poland, for example, when it comes to equality issues or climate engagement. And I think there's a force there that we can really use for the future because they know also that city can do so much more than on a national level. And you see it in the US where I don't know how many mayors has agreed to the... Paris Agreement, but not Trump. So you can also see there that cities still say that we own this deal and we will
5: work to fulfill it. Do you think that the political candidates that have already announced that they would run for European Commission president or announced that they want to be part of the next EU institutions mandate, do you think climate and environmental concerns feature high enough or do you have the feeling that it's an issue that people on the streets are becoming more and more concerned about, but on a political level... Politicians still deal with other issues more as a priority. What we see now is a grassroots movement.
4: And I think that will have an effect, a major impact also on this election, I hope, though. Or otherwise, we will help. Because we think that urban issues should be more prioritised.
2: You were listening to the Mayor of Stockholm and President of EuroCity, Anna koning She spoke with Politico's Kolina Aroshakov. The podcast panel will begin after this message.
0: A message from Bayer. Advancing life, that's what we at Bayer are all about. As a leading life science company, we are contributing to finding solutions to some of the major challenges of our time through our innovations. We also meet our responsibility to protect the environment in many different ways. We are continuously working to reduce the environmental impact of our business activities and develop product solutions that benefit the environment. For example, we offer innovative and cutting-edge digital farming technologies that help farmers use resources more efficiently. From sensors to satellites to smart irrigation systems, digital technologies enabling farmers to take advantage of the data at their fingertips to build successful farms and make agriculture more sustainable. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com.
2: And now it is time to welcome back the podcast panel, Lena Rabaruz. It's great to have you as always.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Lovely being here.
2: And our special guest this week, because Alva is in Africa, we've got Kalina Oroshakov.
1: Hi, nice to see you here.
2: So you're one of our energy reporters, Kalina, and we thought that we would get you involved because you also work on sustainability issues. And you did one of the main interviews this week with the mayor of Stockholm. So we're going to grill you a little bit about what you've been finding on your beat. I thought maybe we could even kick off with a story that you had published today in the print edition of Politico, and it's about the kind of green hole at the heart of Manfred Weber's campaign to replace Jean-Claude Juncker as European Commission President. Tell us, what did you find when you investigated his sustainability policies?
5: Thank you for saying this. Um, It's been interesting over the last weeks watching the climate debate because I guess everyone can see and those living in Brussels have probably heard it. Um, you have protesters, young students, and, and kids running through the streets calling for more climate action, calling on politicians to do more, and every politician in Brussels and beyond has had something to say about that. So we kind of wondered, well, whether the candidate's doing, it? they want to become the next commission president, and Manfred Weber, who's running for the European People's Party, surprisingly hasn't said anything about it. I mean, we looked- and, and
2: what was his reasoning for that when you finally pinned him down?
5: Well, there was no reasoning as such. But then he did, of course, have something broad to say about climate, how climate change is important, how the EU is a leader in the fight against climate change, and how it's important to marry climate efforts with economic competitiveness and economic growth. However, he hasn't in that sense pushed it as a topic for his presidency and for his candidacy. He usually talks about migration, trade, economic issues, while climate has been mostly jumped on by other candidates from other parties. And in the home country of Manfred Weber, for example, climate has become a major political minefield for the parties because Germany is struggling to meet its climate targets. It's worried about the economic impact of climate efforts. And within that broader debate, one could probably argue that Manfred Weber as a German, as a Bavarian hasn't chosen to champion the topic yet.
2: Well, it's interesting. We're hosting a presidential debate in Maastricht on the 29th of April with the university and the region there. And Manfred Weber is the only major candidate yet to confirm for that debate. And surprise, surprise, one of the major topics in the debate is climate. Mm. So we'll have to keep the pressure up on him there. Lena, you have been a very good student this week. Um, When you heard we'd be talking about this, you went off and checked what all the parties did with their manifestos and climate, and you found something surprising as well.
1: Yes, not all the parties, they have uh, manifestos. We contacted almost every party, and I was surprised that the Greens, they have a uh, 60 pages of a manifesto, which is extremely interesting, extremely easy to read, extremely easy to understand. It talks to most of the age groups. They address it in a very simple language, and the same for the, let's say, most sophisticated, well-read experts in environment. But,
2: but is it an impossible bar to clear, or... What you're saying is every party could do something like the Greens if they just put a bit of effort in.
1: Precisely, because I believe people are very much fed up of the traditional two political parties. They need to simplify. They need to humanise their message. And if they want to address really and increase the reach out for voters this time and these elections. And I really believe that each party should go out and about, put their manifesto out, try to explain it, and try to dismay it through all the communication channels, whether the traditional or the social media. And the Greens are really doing a great job on that, and I just examined it yesterday.
2: Well, that reminds me of someone else who does a very good job at getting their message across, and that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the person who's been pushing this idea of a Green New Deal in the United States. I think we'll listen to a clip from her now as a segue into this broader issue of how can you reconcile the demands of people like the climate strikers or those who push for this Green New Deal? with the sort of backlash that has also emerged from people like the Yellow Jackets, the Gilets Jaunes movement in France, when people tried to do big environmental changes and they've made some of the most vulnerable people in society suffer as the way of getting there. So let's hear from AOC now.
0: You want to tell people that their concern and their desire for clean air and clean water is elitist? Tell that to the kids in the South Bronx, which are suffering from the highest rates of childhood asthma in the country. Tell that to the families in Flint, Whose kids have their blood is ascending in in lead levels, their brains are damaged for the rest of their lives. Call them elitist. Tell, you're telling them that those kids are trying to get on a plane to Davos? People are dying.
2: I was just like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, that's great. Like, <laughs> yeah. you got a point. But um, that's,
5: I think, if you talk about the issue of climate change, if you talk about global warming, if you talk about the destruction of the planet, there's not much more to say than that. And I think. In terms of political communication, that is a challenge for politicians because, of course, how do you introduce measures that will tackle the ultimate issue, climate change, without alienating people or harming them in the way economically? And I think that's exactly what you mentioned before. How do you reconcile those two? And I think it is possible and often it has just something to do in how you explain who's going to pay for what and why you pay now in order to save more later. But well, that was, that was the issue
2: with the gilet jaunes is it was a, a tax on anyone who was using fuel rather than something that you targeted either at the wealthiest individuals or the largest corporations. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like it was fair, even if the objective was noble. And with the student climate strikers, what I'm really impressed by is the clarity of their demands. You know, they seem pie in the sky, but also they're very realistic because they're not saying, oh, we have a complex solution because we've been thinking about this for 30 years. They just correctly analyse that the people who have been thinking about it for 30 years failed to deliver what these kids need for their Mm -hmm. futures. Mm -hmm. And they've said, it's your problem to fix it. We're just telling you we're not going to stand for the problem any longer. And so it's quite brutal, but I think very effective because it's so simple.
1: What it's really interesting is to see the younger generations are so much aware. My generation and where I come from, we never thought of environmental issues and climate change. But I think especially now here in Europe with all the movement of the youngsters, there is no more choice. I think they really need to adhere for the youngsters if there's any kind of change to come or they want really to keep ruling through political parties. But then who should
2: pay? Who has to give up something? Is it people like us sitting around this table have to stop flying for weekends away? somewhere. Is that the answer? Or is it large corporations simply have to be forced structurally to behave in a different manner, even if it means they make less profits? Or, know, this came up in your interview, Kalina, with the Stockholm mayor, she still advocated that individuals have to take specific action. You know, she's from the centre-right, so she's not going to argue that it's big, bad corporations who are the problem. She's like, no, you've got to take your kid down to the park and pick up plastic. Everyone has to do that, because if we anyone gives themselves a free pass, we won't do enough change.
5: I think it's on multiple levels, of course. I think the behavioral changes are the most difficult. That's a discussion which makes the climate strike so interesting, because we are at the moment really witnessing a new generation, and that would make huge changes also for politics. Because if the new generation says, we do not want to fly, we do not want to eat meat, we do not consider a weekend trip to Ibiza a sustainable way of living, then it could really set emotion uh, changing... What about if of you of only lifestyle.
2: have salad when you go to Ibiza? <laughs> I think that's a big... That, that's that's, that's yeah. the, that's the, the, the balance, better. really, isn't
5: it? No, exactly, or swim to Ibiza. <laughs> I think that would be the perfect way to go. That's the most sustainable way to go and go on holidays. So I think definitely there's the individual choices, but I think one has to be careful, because if you essentially shift responsibility to tackle climate change and make it a personal issue, I think you do absolve those that have caused it and that pollute of the responsibility. And it feels overwhelming. I mean, I can buy
2: all the green washing liquid that I want, but it doesn't make me feel like I'm going to solve climate change.
5: Exactly. And that I think you do in a structured way as well. And I think that's where the big economic and industrial policy challenges will come. You do have to reorganize the way we produce and consume and organize a society if you're really serious about it. And politicians know that. And I think that's when it starts to become tricky. And that's where also the demands of student strikers and politicians clash.
2: And what about any concrete actions since those strikes have begun? Because you've mentioned clearly that a lot of people now feel the need to get on board. I moderated a debate in Ghent between eight political candidates in the European elections. Seven out of the eight said they supported the climate strikers. But I'm yet to sense that there's a lot of concrete change going on. Have you noticed any uptick at all in what people are promising or what they're legislating around this issue?
5: Very little. I mean, the country that I come from in Germany, of course, Angela Merkel came out in support. But as you say, there's been a lot of politicians who are clever enough to say, we cheer you on, children, great that you're showing engagement. That has nothing to do with actually turning this into a real measure. Here in Belgium, I mean, in Brussels, we're going to see whether they'll have an effect in the elections later in may
2: yeah. it's going well, the greens are actually doing really well yeah. in the belgian polls
5: so it's going to be an interesting case study to see whether this actually trickles down in the system and today in the parliament there's a vote on possible constitutional change to make it possible for belgium to have a federal approach to climate policy belgium being the country that it is
2: it's regional now oh my i'm like actually shocked
5: I mean it makes it but that's the, but that's the thing and it I mean it shows how tricky it is because climate does affect different regions differently so different politicians have different reactions to it so we'll see
2: like we've just talked about how important it is for cities to take action and how they're great units of change I'm all for that but at the end of the day climate change is a global responsibility so if Belgium is cutting out the ability of the federal government to take action then that's just undercutting cities and everything they're trying to do you've got to have it at the highest levels as well surely Okay, let's end on a positive note, because this has been such a positive episode so far. Well, we saw President Macron and President Xi from China. On Tuesday, they signed a joint declaration committing to keep multilateralism alive, including on the climate, aka the Paris Climate Agreement. I think we're all now at the understanding that that's kind of the bare minimum the world needs to do to take action. Maybe it's not perfect, but you know, we need more, not less, probably. And then the two of them in Paris said that they were going to keep that going. So I'm going to nominate that as a thumbs up. There's a lot of nodding here. Can't nod on a podcast. You've got to talk.
1: (laughs) Better late than never. Definitely, it's a thumbs up. Some delays always from Europe. But, you know, I'm a great fan of President Macron for many reasons. I think he's very progressive in that. And he really doesn't want to lose more time. So
2: well, he can't let's have another fuel tax, can he? So he's but got a these wait. Ones. let's
1: see if as well China will honour its commitment and will honour this agreement because, you know, they sign, they agree, and then the delivery is, is something different.
2: Indeed. And I'm going to give a final shout out to the Montreal Protocol. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that, but that is the most successful environmental treaty, probably the most successful international treaty in history. And that was the one for getting rid of CFCs, which were those horrible ozone-destroying gases that mm-hmm. we were pumping out into our atmosphere atmosphere until quite recently. And there's something called the Kigali Amendment, which extends that to hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, that was added to that protocol. And she and Macron were committing to that one as well. So I think there is something that works at international level. So a double thumbs up. Lina, Kalina, thank you so much for joining us. That's all we got time for on this episode of EU Confidential Goes Green. We'll be back with another episode next week, a climate election debate, actually. So please come and join us for that one. If you haven't already signed up as a subscriber to EU Confidential, you can do that on any platform where you found this podcast. And thanks, as always, to the team behind EU Confidential, Christina Gonzalez, Wei Dong Lin, and Andrew Gray.